Well, let's, uh, let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your uh, kindness and mercy to us in Christ. We're grateful for the opportunity we have to meditate on these wonderful truths. We pray that you would enable us to understand them and that you'd bless us as we meditate on these things, that uh, we would be edified and that uh, we might be able in some way to transmit these truths to others in a way that's edifying to them as well. Bless our studies, strengthen our faith, renew us in every grace, for Jesus' sake. Amen. All right, there's a, a handout um, somewhere. There it is. They're in the back. So if you didn't get a handout, um, raise your hand and, and we'll get that to you. It's a, just a one-page handout. Uh, I knew that, that Dr. Glomzard had been talking to you about Martin Luther, and so I, I, I thought it might be helpful to go through a couple of different texts from Luther uh, that, that I have found personally very edifying. And, and so as I was, uh, as we were talking about during the message this morning, uh, one of the great questions that people always have uh, is, how do I know God's will? And there are three uh, basic ways, uh, we could characterize this a variety of ways, but there are at least three ways that people have proposed for knowing God's will apart from Holy Scripture. And the first is mystical revelation. People are often looking for mystical, some sort of mystical revelation. They're, they're listening for a still small voice, uh, as if they were the prophet Elijah. And of course, if you look that up in context, that's not, that, that verse has nothing to do with you knowing whether you should take this job or that job, um, or whether you should marry this person or that person, or, or go to this school or that school. But uh, there's a uh, strong temptation that we have to try to get some kind of direct word from the Lord uh, to know what we ought to do. Uh, I had a friend who said, you know, um, years ago, and I think this was right, uh, if you do, should I marry this girl? And his question was, does, is she a believer? And, and I said, yes. Then he said, yes. Um, there you go. Uh, it, it's not actually that complicated. Uh, uh, should I take this job? Well, is it a moral job? Is it a legal job? Can you do the job? Do you have a job? Answer those questions, and then you're, you're pretty much done. Uh, it, it's, it's actually not that complicated. You don't need a word from the Lord to tell you whether to take this job. Some people have proposed to set out a fleece. Well, I'm going to do this, and if X happens, then I'll know it's the Lord's will. Um, no, actually, you don't know that. Uh, you're, you're interpreting uh, providence, which is really the third way that people have tried. Uh, so the two great differences are between the mechanical and the mystical. The mystical is sitting around listening for a still small voice. Uh, the mechanical is setting up some kind of a test whereby, well, if God does X, then I'll know. Um, and you, you don't know that God has agreed to uh, perform on command to satisfy your test. Uh, you're just interpreting providence and, and attributing to it w whatever meaning uh, you want. In other words, you're just making things up. So uh, the, the way we know God's will uh, is uh, to read God's word and to read it in its context according to its uh, intent, according to its um, stated purpose, uh, read it in its broader context, read it in its narrower context, and, and pray, and pray for wisdom, and try to make a, a good, wise, uh, godly, prudential judgment, and trust the Lord. Uh, and why do we talk that way? Why, for example, as Reformed people, are we, are we always talking about uh, Deuteronomy, which is really, uh, for me, the key here, Deuteronomy 29, 
29, this, that's the key passage for thinking about these issues, Deuteronomy 29, 29, the secret things belong to Yahweh our God. Uh, the revealed things belong to us and to our children forever, that we may do all the words of this law. Right? If you want to know uh, how it is, uh, uh, or how to know what God's will is, you pay attention to the revealed things, not the secret things. The secret things belong to the Lord. The decree belongs to the Lord. The, the Lord's providence in the next five minutes belongs to the Lord. You don't know, and I don't know, what the Lord is going to bring about in his providence. Right? Who knows what could happen? Could be a large truck will come careening off uh, Mast Boulevard and crash into the building. We don't know. I, we trust not in the ordinary providence of God. It, probably not. It's not likely, but, but we don't know what the providence of God will be. So we have to trust the Lord, and, and we can't inquire into his secret decree before it's happened. This is really what we're trying to do when we're setting up you know, either a mystical operation or a mechanical test. We're really trying to inquire into God's um, secret providence before it's taken place. And that's a form of unbelief. It's a form of paganism. Pagans are always trying to figure out a way to, to know what the gods are going to do before they do it, right? This is why kings used to and, and, and did for well into the Christian period, you know, hire seers and prophets to try to figure out if they could get some kind of military advantage on their, on their um, opponents. For Martin Luther, in 1518, this business of inquiring into the secret will of God that, ha- that isn't yet come to pass, right, that is a species, he says, of a theology of glory. And the theology of the cross seeks to know God's will in Scripture in Christ. The theology of the cross seeks to know God's will in Scripture in Christ. So as I was saying this morning, uh, and it, it, I didn't plan for this to um, coincide as much as it did, but... Uh, when we want to decide, when we're trying to establish what God thinks about us, we look at Christ. That's the theology of the cross. So this is what I'm trying to communicate this morning in the time that we have. According to Luther, both salvation and the Christian life, right? for both salvation and the Christian life, we must distinguish between God hidden, as he has not revealed himself, and God as he has revealed himself. We have to distinguish between God hidden as he has not revealed himself and God as he uh, has revealed himself and he has revealed himself in Christ. So this distinction is really fundamental to Protestant theology. Uh, we, uh, the Reformed took this distinction over. One of our uh, more famous theologians uh, in the Reformed tradition, Martin Bootser, who was a Swiss Reformed theologian, uh, sometimes criticized for uh, being a little waffly, and uh, perhaps so, and Calvin criticized him for being verbose. He wrote a massive commentary on Romans uh, that, that is uh, just wordy. It's, it's huge, uh, Latin commentary. But a, a pious man in many respects and an insightful uh, uh, teacher. And uh, uh, Martin Bootser was present at this disputation. And this is where Martin Bucer became a Protestant, was by virtue of hearing this disputation in Heidelberg in 1518. Of course, we're talking about, and so this is Heidelberg before the Heidelberg Catechism, right? 
Who knows when the Heidelberg Catechism was, was published? 1563. 1563. So here we are, uh, several decades before the publication of the Heidelberg Catechism, and, and still Heidelberg really becomes very important uh, already in 1518 to the formation of Reformed theology. Uh, in, in the early 17th century, the late 16th century and early 17th century, one of our uh, theologians, Franciscus Frank, or Fran, depending on how well you, you know him, <laughs> he probably didn't like to be called Fran, but uh, Franciscus Junius um, is his Latin name. Francois Dujon um, is, is, his, is his name. Franciscus Junius gave us a distinction between and maybe you've heard this, he distinguished between theology uh, that is known only to God, which he called archetypal. Maybe, maybe Dr. Horton or Reverend Brown or Dr. Glomsrud has mentioned this, I don't know. But this is a term that he gave us, theology that's archetypal, and only God knows this. It exists, and we know, we know that it exists, but we don't know what's in it. We can't know what's in it. Right? It's not possible for us to know what's in it. But it, we just know that it is. That's all we know. Um, and the fact that we know that it is, is a, is a product of what he called ectypal theology. So we made this distinction between archetypal theology and ectypal theology. Us or we. We know this. God has revealed ectypal. So your Bible is ectypal theology. It's accommodated theology. Calvin talked about uh, God stooping over and speaking to us in Scripture in the way that a nurse speaks to a child. Calvin used a Latin word that's onomatopoetic, right? Balbutiata. Balbutiata. It it's just means uh, baby talk. That's all it means. You, if you just say balbutiata, it sort of sounds like baby talk. Right? The way we talk to our puppies or our babies, that's baby talk. This, all of Holy Scripture, it's true, it's inspired, it's infallible, it's inerrant, but it's all baby talk. It, uh, God accommodates himself, he stoops over to speak to us in a way that we can understand. All of these categories, archetypal, ectypal, right? Um, God as he knows himself, God as he's revealed himself, all of this derives from Martin Luther's distinctions that he made at the um, Heidelberg Disputation in 1518. Uh, John Calvin uh, wrote a, a wonderful commentary on the book of Psalms, and there's a very good book on this commentary by a friend of mine, Hermann Zelderheis, a Dutch scholar. It's been translated into English, and he, one of the things he does in this book is he traces out the influence of Luther on Calvin in his commentary on the Psalms, where he sees repeatedly Calvin appealing to this distinction between God hidden and God revealed, or the theology of the cross versus the theology of glory. So this is not just Martin Luther. It's not some Lutheran distinctive or idiosyncrasy. This is basic Protestant theology. And if you'll, if you'll follow where this goes, right, there's not a secret. I'm not selling anything. But I am offering you, uh, I think, a very helpful truth that is very liberating. Because sitting around trying to figure out what it is that God wants you to do apart from Scripture, whether by mysticism or mechanism, is paralyzing. It's just absolutely paralyzing, and I can't tell you how many times and how much time I've spent with God's people wrestling through the various uh, you know, mechanisms or, or mysticisms trying to figure out what it is that they should do. Well, uh, uh, the background for this is that 
uh, Martin Luther is right in the middle of a period between 1513 and, and really 1525, but we can say 1513 to 1521, of becoming a Protestant. 1513 to 1521. Luther did not become a Protestant in one shattering experience, as even as some scholars have said, by, by virtue of sitting on the toilet. It, uh, that's, uh, that just didn't happen. He gradually became a Protestant. And you say, well, why did it take so long? Well, because he was overturning a thousand years of confusion. And that takes a little while. Even for one corpulent, you know, Augustinian monk. He's a substantial guy and a brilliant mind and really a gift of God to the church. And I don't say that lightly. He really was. Calvin called him an apostle. Calvin almost never criticized Luther, by the way. Very rarely will you find Calvin criticizing Luther. He criticizes him for his vehemence on the Lord's Supper because Calvin disagreed with him a little bit. He agreed with him in, in substance, but he disagreed with him a little bit. He, he, um, but otherwise, he almost never criticized Luther because he had such high regard. And in fact, Luther had a, a really significant influence. I'm convinced from my study of Calvin that Luther is one of the principal influences on Calvin's theology. And one of the great disappointments of my life is how little Reformed and Presbyterian people have been able to recognize that, particularly in the modern period. All right, so Luther is in the, gradually becoming a Protestant. He's, he's, a, he's lecturing in the university on the book of Psalms, and he's recovering uh, Augustine's and Paul's doctrine of original sin and unconditional grace, right? That should sound familiar to you, right? The Synod of Dort meets in 1618, 1619 to recover those very things against the Arminians or the Remonstrants. Unconditional election and original sin uh, or, or total depravity. We're, we are so wicked, we are so depraved after the fall that all of our faculties are, are uh, affected and we're not able to do what lies within us. There, there were medieval theologians, particularly in the late medieval period, one in particular, that, uh, who said... To those who do what lies within them, to those who do what lies within them, God denies not grace to do what lies within. God, deni God denies not grace. Right? There's a Latin, this is a translation of a Latin expression that was taught by uh, a 15th century Franciscan monk, and it was taught in substance earlier by a 14th century Franciscan theologian. And Luther was taught this as a university student. Luther was taught this as a university student, that, that, that God in, in nature had endowed us with certain abilities. And essentially what happened is that these Franciscans had collapsed nature and grace. And they said, God, grace is nature, nature is grace, right? And whenever you hear people doing that, whenever you hear people refusing to make a, a distinction between nature and grace, your antenna should go up and, and, and think, oh, for, I don't know, there's a reason why I think that's not good. And you're right, there's a reason that's not good. Because traditionally, in the history of Christian theology, when people have done that, it has led to uh, uh, an error known as Pelagianism. Pelagius said that we're basically un, unaffected by the fall. Adam set a bad example. So these guys were going back to Pelagius, and they were saying, you're really not uh, sinful. Uh, you have the ability, if you will, if you'll do your part, if you capitalize on what God has given you, 
They had a technical word for the, the things that they said God has given everyone. If you capitalize on that, God has covenanted to meet you halfway. Ben Franklin, ben Franklin summarized this in the 18th century by saying God helps those who help themselves. Right? I've had people say, and I've, I've seen people to say, that's in the Bible. No, it's in Ben Franklin. It's decidedly not in the Bible. God helps those who help themselves. Uh, Franklin was essentially repeating 15th century Franciscan theology. I don't know that he, whether he knew that, but that's what he was doing. And Luther was taught this 15th century Franciscan theology, and he really was struggling with it as well he should have. And so as he's lecturing through the Psalms, he's realizing, well, that's not true. I don't have anything within me that I can do. All I have within me by nature is sin and corruption and death. And he gets this from Augustine. He gets this from the Psalms. And he realizes that God's uh, grace is unconditional, that God has chosen us in Christ from all eternity, not because there's anything in us or he's seen anything in us or because we've met any conditions of any covenant, right? met the terms of a covenant, but simply because he's gracious to those whom he loved in Christ from all eternity. That's all very familiar to us, but when Luther is rediscovering this, this is kind of a big breakthrough. It's kind of a big breakthrough. He's, then he's figuring out, you know, imputation. As he's lecturing through Romans after that, he sees that the basis on which God declares us righteous is not what's taking place inside of us. It's what Christ has done outside of us that Luther called an alien righteousness. It's alien righteousness. It doesn't come from Mars, but it's alien to us. It's outside of us, and it's credited to us. The basis of our righteousness is what Christ did it's proper to him, it belongs to him, it's in him, and it's credited to us. Do you get that? That's imputation. And then he figured, then he learned by lecturing through Galatians, Hebrews, and then the Psalms again, that the way we receive uh, all of these benefits is faith alone. And I bet you can tell me the Latin for faith alone. You know more Latin than you realize. Sola fide. I bet you've heard that a few times in this congregation. Sola fide. Faith is the alone instrument for receiving all that Christ has done. So these are the things he's learning. And then finally he gets to the Diet of Worms and he declares to the whole world that uh, to go against uh, Scripture and, and uh, plain reason is neither right nor safe. He probably didn't say, here I stand, I can do no other, God help me. He should have said it and, and somebody ascribed it to him, but uh, there's, there's some doubt as to whether he actually said it. But it it, it, it's still a wonderful uh, picture of, of um, confidence in the Word of God, right? So, and so there he's really affirming sola scriptura. Right? Scripture is the sole authority for the Christian faith and the Christian life. So that's the context. And in the middle of this, right in the, in the period where he's figuring out that faith is the instrument. Now, by the time of the Heidelberg Disputation, he, he hadn't quite figured it out yet, but he's in the process of figuring it out, and he's called to Heidelberg in April of 1518. Uh, he's, they're holding a meeting of the Augustinian monks in, in uh, Heidelberg, and Luther was the regional manager. He was, they called him a district victor, vicar, a district vicar, hard to say, a regional manager, uh, like a, like, just like you'd have in a company. And his job was to sort of organize this thing and, and to present... A thesis, right? You, know, you have to spell that correctly. Um, right? Uh, these uh, a certain number, and I, 
I didn't print them all out for you, but these are arguments. They're going to hold an academic sort of debate or presentation, and it was called a disputation. And this is the Heidelberg disputation. Uh, and the, the general theme for this disputation that Luther uh, presented to these monks is that the covenant theology that he had been taught when he was in university, that many of them had been taught, is this covenant theology, this Franciscan covenant, that leads to despair. Because uh, you can't do what lies within you. In fact, one of the theses that he proposed at Heidelberg is to say, to anyone who says that, uh, uh, anyone who talks about doing what lies within you, that leads to death and it's a mortal sin which is a huge thing to say in 1518. He's starting to figure out what grace is. Right? Here we are at this end of the Reformation, and we think, well, of course, everybody knows what grace is. But everybody didn't know what grace was. Everybody, most people thought that grace was a kind of a medicinal substance with which you're infused like a shot, like a flu shot from the doctor. And every week you went and you received the sacrament Right? Or once a year you went and you received the sacrament and every week you went to, to confession and you received penance to do and you're being infused with grace and then you're cooperating with grace and then God is, is prepared to accept you, you know, uh, to your best efforts as you cooperate with grace but nobody's ever really justified, nobody's ever really sanctified and, and everybody's always on the hook. You ever, you ever been on probation at a job? You get a new job, and, and usually you start out on a probationary period. In the teaching business, that probation lasts seven years. You probably didn't know that. You should pray for Dr. Glomsrud. He's still on probation. Right? It's a seven-year probation. And, and, of course, today in our economy, everybody's on probation all the time. Right? If you, don't doubt, if you doubt me, go to work and, and, and mess up and see what happens. Go to work and, and, uh, and announce in the coffee room that uh, there are only two kinds of humans in the world, males and females, and uh, anybody who says otherwise is itching for a fight and see if you don't find yourself in the human resources department. Right? We're, all, we're all on a covenant of works. Well, uh, uh, he's learning that, no, before God, in Christ, we're, on a, we're in a covenant of grace. Before God, we're in a covenant of grace, and grace is not a, med- a medicine with which we cooperate. Grace is a is God's free favor to us in Christ. And so he proposes in, in Thesis 19, he wants, he wants these monks to understand what a true theologian is. And a true theologian is a theologian of the cross. Sometimes these are not translated properly, so I give you my own translation. One is not worthy to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God. This is a quotation from Romans 1.20. Right? And why is he, he's not, he, and here he's not saying that we don't actually uh, know something about God from nature, right? He's not saying that we don't know things about God, um, but there are, there's a limit to what you can know about God from nature, right? As though they were clearly perceptible in those things which have actually happened. Right? Um, he goes on to say, and he says elsewhere, particularly in his, in his book, uh, which is frequently translated bondage of the will, which is probably better translated the bound will. It's a better translation, but it's too late now, I guess. That, that, that cow is out of the barn. The, the question he's trying to address here is, who is a theologian of the cross? And the first thing that you have to know about a theologian of the cross right, is that he does not, it's a negative thesis, he does not look upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things that have actually happened. He doesn't try to reason from 
uh, uh, nature to get to God. That's his point. You can't reason from nature to get to God. What you learn from nature is that God is holy, God is just, and there's a judge, and you're in trouble. That's what you learn from nature. But you don't learn salvation from nature. You can't figure out salvation from nature. The gospel is not in nature. The gospel is not in the stars. There's a famous a celebrity uh, Presbyterian minister, now deceased, who I'm sure has repented uh, much of having published a booklet many years ago called The Gospel in the Stars, where he proposed that you could look at the zodiac and infer the gospel. It's complete rubbish, and it's a great example of what we call, what Luther calls, the theology of glory. No, you learn the gospel in Scripture from the preaching of the gospel in the sacraments. You learn the gospel at the cross, not in the dirt. You learn the gospel from the cross and not in the dirt. What you learn from the dirt is nature. What you learn from the dirt is judgment. What you learn from the dirt is law. And this is really at the heart of what he's getting at. What the medieval church didn't get and what Luther was learning in this period is the distinction, and I'm sure you've heard this many times, between law and gospel. There are two kinds of words in Scripture. right? One word is law, and it says, do this and live. The other word is gospel. And it says, you know, looking forward, Christ shall do, or looking backward, Christ has done. Those are two different kinds of words. And again, these become fundamental to Reformed theology. There are people who will dispute that, but I say to them, you don't know your own tradition. And I, I say that with all seriousness, and I say that with a, with a, a good deal of research behind it. I can, I can prove it from original texts that our theologians consistently uh, in the classical period, 16th and 17th centuries, and really up till very recently, very clearly and repeatedly distinguished just the way Luther did between law and gospel. So don't let anybody, and again, you, will, you won't, nobody here is going to lead you astray, but there are other places where people will say, well, that's not true, only Lutherans distinguish between law and gospel. And that's, again, that's just not true. It's, it is historically, factually false. Okay, so Luther is distinguishing between law and gospel. This is thesis 19. One is not worthy to be called a theologian who looks upon the invisible things of God as though they were clearly perceptible in those things that have happened. And he's quoting here Romans 1.20, and he's uh, also quoting Colossians, or 1 Corinthians, uh, referring to, alluding to 1 Corinthians 1. Right? So the first, that, that's, the, that's the first uh, question. He actually gave an exposition of this. Uh, and, and he says, this is apparent in the example of those who were theologians, in quotation marks, and still called fools by the apostle in Romans 1.22. Furthermore, the invisible things of God are virtue, godliness, wisdom, justice, goodness, and so forth. The recognition of, these, of all these things does not make one worthy or wise. You can see, in other words, virtue is something that a pagan can figure out. A virtue is something that a pagan can figure out. The gospel is something a pagan can't figure out. Does that make sense? It'll make more sense as we go on. Second thesis, number 20. But, uh, but the one who knows, literally it says, but who knows the visible things, and he says literally, the backside of God. It's one of the most striking expressions in all of Christian history, really. These three theses are one of the, three of the most remarkable things ever said by a theologian in the entire history of the church, which is saying quite a lot. But he who knows the visible things and the backside of God, seen through the passions and the cross. This, this is a reference, it's an allusion to Exodus uh, 33, 23. 
Exodus 33:23. A theologian of the cross uh, doesn't look at nature. He doesn't look at reason first. He doesn't look at uh, virtue. He looks, he seeks for God in the backside, in, in God's backside. Exodus 33, uh, 23. Uh, uh, Backing up just a little bit in Exodus 33, right? Uh, Remember, uh, uh, just go up to verse 18. And Moses said, please show me your glory. How many times have we prayed, Lord, show me your glory? How many times have people uh, talked to us about God's glory? They're, They're famous uh, ostensibly Reformed theologians who talk to us a lot about God's glory and when God is most glorified and all of that. Right? Moses says, show me your glory. And look at what Yahweh says. Right? And I will make my goodness, my good, I will make, you, you want glory and I'll show you goodness. Do you, do you remember that movie with Jack Nicholson? Right? Uh, he's a military officer, he's on trial and Tom, uh, what, few good men, he wants the truth. Well, you, yeah, you want the glory of God, right? You can't handle the glory of God, Jack Nicholson says. <laughs> Amen. God says to Moses, you can't handle the glory of God. I'll, I will, I'll make my goodness pass before you, and I will proclaim before you my name, Yahweh. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. Oh, my. And I uh, will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. God is the sovereign Lord. He decides. He sets the terms. We don't set the terms. You want glory? I show you mercy and declare that I am the sovereign Lord. I elect. I reprobate. But, he said, you cannot see my face. For man shall not see me and live. My students think I'm kidding when I say, don't open that door. I'm not kidding when I say, I I say it with all seriousness. Oh, I just, if I could just see the glory of God. Yeah, well, you could be burnt to a crispy crunch. And Yahweh said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on a rock, and while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by, and then I will take away my hand, and you will see my backside. It's the, the Latin word here in the Vulgate is literally my posterior. <laughs> you want to see, and I, I, I have to be a little direct here because I want to capture what Luther is saying. This is Luther we're talking about. Now, I trust Dr. Glomzer has sort of initiated you into Luther's personality, right? <laughs> right? The, Luther is a, kind of a rustic, small-town German boy, right? Grew up, you know, not in a, he's not a polished city boy. He's, he's educated, I identify with him. I grew up in a pretty sort of small town America, putting up fence for grandpa, working cattle, and farmers have a plain way of talking about basic biological necessities. So I don't want to be crude, but I want you to get the force of this. You want to see my glory? You can look at my posterior. You can look at my backside. That's what you get to see. That's my backside. But my face shall not be seen. Now, go back to Luther and look what he says. 
is one of the most amazing things. And the backside of God, same word as the Vulgate. That's why we know it, that word doesn't actually occur a lot. But the posterior, literally, of God, posterior dei, seen through the passions and the cross. You want to see God? You want to see his face? You see his backside. And where do you see his backside? Standing at the foot of Golgotha as Jesus hauls that cross up the hill. That's the backside of God. That's, that's what God has for you to see. That's amazing. If you don't take anything else away this morning, you take that away. Oh, Lord, where are you? He's hauling up a cross. He's carrying a cross. Beaten, bloodied, humiliated, mocked, naked, and hauling a cross, his own cross, up Golgotha as far as his body would allow him to take it. His true human body, incarnate, sinless, righteous, true human. That's God's manifestation. That's God's revelation. That's a theology of the cross. Not a theology of glory. Did you get that? You probably, you know, I've been teaching this now since 1995, and I'm still getting it. I remember the first time I taught this. I almost passed out. We were going through a textbook, and this quotation was in this textbook. And I just thought, this is the most amazing thing I've ever heard. I just wanted, I wanted to go through it with him and then dismiss class, because you just need to think about this. This is one of the most profound truths ever uttered in the history of Christian theology, I think. The theology of glory wants to climb up to God. You, I know you've heard Dr. Horton talk about this, ladder climbing, right? All of medieval theology was about climbing a ladder. And, and the gospel is that Christ uh, doesn't set up a ladder. The gospel is that Christ got on a slide and he came to us, as it were. That's the amazing thing. God came to us. Right? Um, the theology of the cross recognizes that God has come to us. Um, all right, well, we got, we've, we've, got to, we've got to move on a little bit. Um, the third thesis here, uh, 21, the theology of glory. This is, uh, we'll just be brief on this, but if you, knew, uh, if you know a little bit about medieval theology, this is really um, kind of hilarious in a kind of academic way, because there was a lot of debate in medieval philosophy and theology leading up to this point about how to relate, and we're still arguing about this, right? Anybody, if you've been to college, you, you've had a literature class, and your prof talked to you about a movement called deconstruction, or if you've had, if you've had uh, an architecture class, they've talked to you about postmodernism, postmodern architecture, postmodern art, right? Or, or you hear most about it now in literature, in English departments, right? Uh, and the, the debate is about how to relate a, a, a sign, let's say a word, to the thing. What's the nature of the relationship between a sign and a word and a thing? That's actually a huge debate. Oh, I don't, this is easy, right? Which bathroom should you go into? Why are we having this debate about which bathroom should people go into? Because we've stopped talking about sex right? Human beings belong to a sex, a male or female sex, and we've replaced sex with a grammatical concept called gender. We talk about genders. That's complete nonsense. You don't belong to a gender. A gender is an arbitrary uh, grammatical concept. We talk about ships as she, because in some languages, the, the word for ship is a feminine word, so we substitute she. Well, that ship's not actually female. 
You can't put a male ship with a female ship and come out with little baby ships. It's, just, it's a convention. It's arbitrary. We're just making stuff up. That's not true with human beings or with cows or, or dogs. Right? And the way God has organized nature in reality is that there are males and females. But we substituted uh, uh, the, the biological category, the natural category of sex, for the grammatical category of gender. Quit talking about human genders. Humans don't have genders. They belong to sexes, male sexes and female sexes. But we've substituted gender, and then we've said that gender is arbitrary, and I self-identify as a female, and therefore I get to go into the, the bathroom for females. That, that this is exactly what we were arguing about in, in a way, same kind of question, in the Middle Ages. Now, look at Luther. You didn't know Luther was going to help you sort out the North Carolina bathroom problem. <laughs> Luther has something for everything. He, he really does. The theologian of glory calls evil good and, and good evil. In other words, the theologian of glory really doesn't know how to relate signs and things. The theologian of the cross he says, calls a thing what it is. The theologian of the cross knows how to relate the sign to the thing signified. This is genius. He takes a sword and he runs it through a whole lot of medieval theology and he just bloodies it and guts it. We know what reality is and we know what the relationship between the sign and the thing signified is because we know God as he has manifested himself in the cross and thereby he's connected us to real reality. We know what nature is. We know what it isn't. What, what it isn't. We know what the gospel is. We know what the truth is. Our eyes have been opened. We see things as they really are through the word of God, through Christ. Now, Honestly, even an honest pagan, and I've heard several of them do it recently, can tell you the difference between males and females. And if, if, you're, and if you or somebody you know is struggling with them, I'll take you on a field trip. There are cattle between Escondido and pretty close to Ramona. There's a pasture and there's some cattle. And we'll take you out there and we'll, have a, we'll, we'll just sit and watch. And then after a while, you'll figure out the difference between males and females. It's not that complicated. We've got to find some bulls. I think most of those are steer out there. But anyway, that gets a little technical. But anyway, we just got to find a bull and a cow and everything will be all right. You have to sign a little permission slip. We know what a thing is and we call a thing what it is because we know what it is. What he's really worried about here is a theology of the cross has two great faults. The theology of the cross has two great faults. The first fault is that it's... it's uh, it's moralism, it's moralism, and the second fault is rationalism. Moralism says, well, I can present myself to God on the basis of my performance, and rationalism uh, says, my intellect, my, my mind knows what God knows the way he knows it. Or my mind is the authority over all other authorities. For this discussion, it doesn't matter which way we go. Moralism says, I'm going to present myself to God on the basis of my performance. And Luther says, good luck with that. Right? Good luck with that. Have you, uh, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything which is written in the book of the law. It doesn't say cursed is everyone who does his, right, uh, uh, who tries his, let me try that again. It's not as if God is saying, well, if you try your best, that's okay. That's what I want to say. Cursed is everyone 
who does not continue to do everything which is written in the book of the law. Everything. Everything. All the time. Perfectly. You want to present yourself to God on the basis of performance? The standard is perfection. You can't do it. Ergo, you need a savior. Rationalism says, well, I know what God knows the way he knows it, or my, my intellect is the, is the supreme authority over all things. And Luther says, no, that's not true. A theology of the cross says, no, God's will is sovereign over all things. A theology of the cross says, you can't present yourself to, to God on the basis of your performance. You present yourself to God on the basis of his perform of Christ's performance. You don't put your intellect... You don't identify your intellect with God, and you don't put your intellect above God or his word. You submit to his word. You submit to the cross. You submit to the incarnation. We're running out of time, so I can't get to the last part, but there is a section in in his, uh, maybe his greatest treatise, The Bound Will, right, uh, or The Bondage of the Will, published in 1525, where Luther goes after Erasmus, for the very things that we've been discussing here. He goes after Erasmus for failing to distinguish between law and gospel. There are a lot of Erasmian Christians in the Reformed world today. There are a lot of Erasmian Christians in the Reformed world today who think that they need to present God on the basis of their performance or who think their intellect is intersected with God's or is superior to his word. And they, and they want you to think that's true Reformed theology. That's not true. Luther here in this distinction is much closer to the heart of Reformed theology than the Erasmians pretending to be Reformed. There are Erasmians pretending to be Reformed. Mystics, pietists, moralists, behavioralists, and rationalists. And, and because, uh, he goes on to say, because Erasmus doesn't distinguish between law and gospel... He's a theologian of glory, not a theologian of the cross. And then, finally, let me read this this last quotation here. It's kind of a lengthy quotation, but I'm going to read from Bondage of the Will, where he says, We have to argue about God in one way, or the will of God, as preached, revealed, offered, and worshipped, and in another way about God as he is not preached, not revealed, not offered, not worshipped. To the extent, therefore, that God hides himself and wills to be unknown to us, it is no business of ours. But above God, he says, as he is not worshipped and not preached, but as he is in his own nature and majesty, nothing can be exalted, but all things are under his mighty hand. God, therefore, he says, must be left to his own majesty. For in this regard, we have nothing to do with him, nor has he willed that we should have anything to do with him. But we have something to do with him insofar as he is uh, revealed to us, uh, clothed, uh, he says, through which he offers himself to us. This imagery as clo- of clothing, God as he's clothed himself, the, one of the uh, authors and editors of the Heidelberg Catechism, Caspar Olivianus, says that cr- God has clothed himself in the covenant of grace. God has clothed himself in the covenant of grace. That's a direct reflection on Luther's teaching in the bondage of the will. If you know Luther, our theology makes a lot more sense. If you don't know Luther, then he ends up then our theology ends up sounding a lot like Richard Baxter, who is a wicked moralist. Uh, but but we have something to do with him insofar as he is clothed 
through that which he offers, he himself offers to us, which is the beauty and glory uh, with which the psalmist celebrates him as being clothed. Anyway, he goes on to, to make that distinction. Insofar as God is hidden, we don't know anything about him. This gets back to where we started. You know, Pastor, I just don't know what to do. I don't know what job to take. I don't know whom to marry. I don't know where to go to school. You go to him in, in his word. You ask for wisdom. You ask for prudence. And you conduct yourself according to what he said and the way he's revealed, to you, re- revealed himself to you in Christ. That's, that's your freedom. That's the theology of the cross. You look for him in Christ. You look for him... You look for him in Christ, holding the cross up Golgotha. Well, let's, let's close. Father, we're grateful for our time this morning, for your goodness and mercy to us in Christ. We're grateful for your uh, revelation to us in Christ, that you are not a stranger, that you are not utterly hidden, uh, but that you have made known your grace, your law, your, your holiness, your justice, and your kindness and mercy and free favor to us. Lord, hear our prayer. Bless us on the Lord's day. Renew us with rest. Renew us in the gospel. And bring us again this evening to worship you in truth and in grace. For Jesus' sake, amen.